The kids are down for a nap in the Taylor household, so that means it's time for another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast, hosted by yours truly, Dr. Colby Taylor. I'm a psychologist. I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University. At the university, we're out for summer break. I'm recording this episode in June. I'm actually teaching a June uh, course on psychopathology. It's online, so I'm enjoying doing that. Doing a lot of clinical work over the summer. Um, that's why I've been a little remiss in recording episodes. Doing three days of clinical work um, per week this summer. And then in a couple of weeks, I'm loading up the family and we're going to the beach in Florida. So I'm super excited about that. Hopefully I'll record another episode uh, before our beach sojourn. So it's June. I feel like a news story, at least in the United States, is going to get a lot of play in the next month. Uh, regards the opening of the National Mental Health Hotline, or sometimes you'll hear it called the Lifeline. So back in season two, I believe I recorded an episode on suicide, and I think at the beginning and end of that episode on suicide, I gave out the number to the National Suicide Hotline, or Suicide Prevention Hotline. It was a long number. It was a 1-800 number. Um, the United States has decided to consolidate that 1-800 number into a three-digit hotline number. And those three digits are 988. The purpose of this is to kind of parallel the 911 service we have here, right? It's a lot easier to remember three digits like 911 or 988 than it is uh, a string of, I don't know, uh, 10 digits with a 1-800 number, 11 digits, whatever. Um, and so starting on July 16th, 988 is going to be the number nationwide to call if you're in a mental health crisis. Essentially, the purpose of this is to reduce the burden on 911 services. So 988 can be uh, an alternative uh, for a mental health crisis than 911. This is essentially taking over from the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, but it's for more than suicide prevention, and I'll cover that a little bit later in the episode. Um, it's not just a suicide prevention number. It was actually signed into law in 2020 by President Trump, the official name of the act was the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act. We're just now rolling it out two years later, and there's a few reasons why I think this is going to be in the news in the coming month. The first is, unfortunately, since I recorded the last episode, uh, there have been several mass shootings in the United States, which I'm sure everybody is aware of. Uvalde, Texas, Buffalo, New York, um, all over the United States. And so there is a renewed emphasis on putting uh, government money into mental health. Um, the second reason is I think this has a potential, at least on the front end, to be an absolute cluster, to be an absolute disaster. Um, NBC News reported last week that there are only uh, four states, Colorado, Virginia, Nevada, and Washington, that have enough state funding uh, to fund this 988 rollout. So that's really troublesome. 46 states and all of the territories uh, do not have enough money uh, to fund this 988 hotline that's rolling out July 16th. So we're talking about, I'm recording this June 11th. It's a month away. We're far from ready. Obviously, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is super important, and it's become more and more utilized as the years have gone on. So it started in 2005, 17 years old at this point. Um, and since 2005, uh, the National Suicide Prevention Hotlines received 20 million calls. 
uh, and 2.4 million calls alone in 2020. So we're seeing increased usage of this hotline. And I would imagine since it's going to be simplified to three digits, we're going to see even more usage of the hotline. Unfortunately, you pair this increased usage with the, um, the labor shortage in the United States and the lack of funding that I just mentioned, um, and you're going to get a headache. So there's huge hiring difficulties. Um, there's hundreds of vacant positions. So the way this hotline, this 988 hotline is going to work is that there's going to be over 180 local call centers. And these call centers are going to be staffed by volunteers and by paid employees. So call centers all throughout the United States. And this was actually a big dilemma when they were creating this 988 hotline. The dilemma was whether to provide local care. Uh, and the advantage of local care would be that you would have more culturally sensitive um, call centers because you would be talking to somebody in your community. These people in your community that you would be talking to on the hotline would be more attuned to local resources. Um, and so you would get sort of tailored care based on the region that you're in. Uh, they would also have, you know, immediate hookups to emergency um, resources if that was necessary, uh, sort of in your local jurisdiction, versus to have like a national call center. A national call center would be more centralized. Uh, the volunteers would probably be better trained. Um, and a national call center would probably be better funded. So if they had gone the national route, you would have sort of tighter controls over the call center. Uh, anyways, they decided to go the local route. And again, there's going to be 180 local call centers uh, when this 988 starts on July 16th. A lot of these local call centers were already in existence before 988 rolled around. And now 988 is just going to sort of funnel calls to the local call centers. So here in Memphis, we've had a call center, I think, for over 50 years. It's called the Memphis Crisis Center. And there was an article in the local newspaper on the Memphis Crisis Center a few weeks ago. Uh, and there was a quote from the director, Mike Labani. And he said, most people that are calling us are not looking for a clinical experience so much as they are looking for an authentic human experience. They're looking for warmth and care. Initially, what we do is we take the time to compassionately connect with that person. We take the time to establish rapport, let them know we care, let them tell their story. Uh, so again, these local call centers, uh, these people uh, are aware of sort of community ideals. They're probably better able to communicate using uh, vernacular. You're listening to somebody in Memphis with a Southern accent. It can be very comforting to somebody on the other end of the line. Um, so uh, we'll see how this plays out. Again, I'm kind of skeptical, at least on the front end, that this will roll out very smoothly because, again, underfunded in a lot of different states, all of the states outside of Colorado, Virginia, Nevada, and Washington. Um, and also there's just hundreds of vacant positions that are frantically rushing to staff these call centers. Um, it's also a colossal joint effort between different federal agencies. And we know when we have different federal agencies that are sort of working together, uh, and there's not a super clear division of responsibilities, um, there's the opportunity for a lot of things to go wrong. Um, with this 988 hotline, like the FCC is involved, the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, we have a lot of different organizations within Health and Human Services. Uh, within Health and Human, Human Services, right, we have SAMHSA. SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Uh, we have the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, the NIMH, uh, the National Institute for Mental Health. We have the CDC, the Center for Disease Controls. There's just so many different federal agencies uh, with different responsibilities 
uh, with this hotline that I see a lot of opportunity for this to go wrong. And that's just the federal agencies. We also have a lot of different private partners that are involved in this. Um, you can go to the, uh, the Lifeline uh, website. You can get into Google and you can look at the dozens of different private partners. Uh, you have Kaiser Permanente. You have a, a lot of different universities, a lot of different hospitals throughout the United States uh, that have been involved in creating this 988 hotline. Uh, and interestingly, if you're going through this list online, you'll see the American Psychiatric Association as a partner. Um, going through this list, it doesn't appear that the American Psychological Association is a partner. So the American Psychiatric Association is, the American Psychological Association is not. Again, I have a feeling the rollout of this is going to be rough. I mentioned the FCC is involved, the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, the FCC is requiring that all mobile phone companies support 988 texting. So 988 texting will be a thing too. I do have some questions on how the texting works out, but... Who knows? Um, because this is requiring the cell phone companies to put forth money to support 998 texting, there's a possibility that your cell phone bills will go up. You might actually see an added fee to cell phone lines, um, at least in certain states, to cover the cost of this 988 rollout. I mentioned I was sort of unclear on how the texting is going to work out. Um, there's a lot that I'm unclear about with this. Uh, one of the things on the front end I was unclear about um, if you've looked at sort of the news and legislation on this, it's called the National Suicide Hotline or whatever. And it left me wondering, you know, is it just for suicide or is it for all mental health crises? So I, I did some digging. Uh, it's not just for suicide, even though, again, it's sort of misleading that a lot of the different media portrayals of this talk about it being the suicide hotline or whatever. Um, it's also for drug-related emergencies or anyone in, quote, mental health distress. So I guess if you had homicidal ideation, if you had suicidal aviation, obviously, um, uh, maybe uh, you're struggling with an eating disorder or something like that, an emergent mental health crisis, you could call this hotline. Another thing I had a question about are um, when you get on with a, with a counselor, uh, do they discuss with you on the front end the limits of confidentiality, right? You call um, you say that, you know, I'm, I'm feeling like I might commit suicide. You give sort of a specific plan. Um, and the next thing you know, like an, an ambulance or a police officer might be showing up at your front door. Uh, and you're like, wow, I feel kind of betrayed. I was just calling to, to, you know, hear a voice on the line to talk to somebody, you know, to make a connection to another human being. I had no idea um, that, you know, emergency services could get called. So I don't know if at the very beginning of the call, um, there's sort of a disclaimer that says, hey, you know, here's the limits of confidentiality. If you talk about seriously hurting yourself or seriously hurting somebody else, um, we might have to notify, you know, local authorities. Um, and if you did have that disclaimer on the front end, would that lead to a lot of people hanging up saying, hey, I'm not calling this hotline. You know, I'm, if the purpose is I'm, you know, I am suicidal and they're giving me this disclaimer, maybe I'm not going to open up to a counselor. Um, so I'm curious about that. When you call the phone line, what happens? I do know sort of in the fine print online, um, uh, on this hotline, that there is an imminent risk policy. So the imminent risk policy says that counselors can call emergency or what they call active rescue services with or without consent. So if you're on the hotline, they're worried about your, your safety and well-being, um, they can call your local uh, EMS. Uh, they can call an ambulance, they can call police, whatever. Um, 
again, you can get online and sort of read since this is like a federal, federally funded project. Um, there's 70 pages online uh, that taught, mention things like the imminent risk policy. So again, this is not a completely confidential phone line. Um, if you're reading this you know, uh, 70 page document online, you get to about page 20. It talks about involuntary interventions. So involuntary interventions would be against the caller's will, um, the, the counselor feeling the need to call the police or to, to call an ambulance or whatever. Um, it did mention, uh, as the suicide hotline exists now, um, they think that fewer than 2% of calls require emergency services. So 98% uh, don't require um, sort of imminent risk. Um, there's also a policy, if you're reading online, on attempts in progress. So unfortunately, occasionally people will call uh, the hotline um, and be actively committing suicide um, or have already ingested some substance uh, that could lead to suicide. Um, and one of the questions I had with this hotline is if that happens, um, is caller ID used and can call location services be used? Um, and the policy on this is a little bit vague. Most of the local call centers do employ caller ID and it does mention that it is possible to use geolocation or call location um, if you know there's an imminent risk, if there's an in attempt in progress. Um, I was also curious, you know, I feel like a fair amount of this hotline might not be used by somebody that's necessarily in a mental health crisis, but by like a friend or family member that's concerned about somebody that's in a mental health crisis. And so this is called a third party caller. Um, again, you're not calling for yourself, you're calling for somebody else. Um, and in the data uh, that they have on the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, almost 10% of calls are by third party callers. And sort of best practice with this um, for counselors working in these call centers uh, is to facilitate a three-way call. Um, if the third-party caller is comfortable with that, the third-party caller can call the person they're concerned about, um, sort of patch them in to a counselor, and they can talk things out. Um, another question I had was, what about people that call and hang up? Um, you know, that could be really concerning for a counselor. You have somebody that talks about being in a mental health emergency and then they just sort of drop the line. They ghost you. You know, what happens then? Um, and uh, that is known as call abandonment. Um, and there's policies on call abandonment online. Um, and th there's a fair amount, as you can imagine, uh, a fair percentage of these calls are abandoned in progress, right? There are, there are hangups either before a counselor picks up, um, which is called being in queue. Uh, and unfortunately with staffing shortages, uh, oftentimes people are put on hold or get probably the annoying elevator music or wait music or whatever until a counselor is available. Uh, and there's some concerning wait times in certain parts of the country. And we're talking maybe 20 minutes. And if somebody's, you know, in, a, in an acute mental health crisis, we don't want them to wait 20 minutes. Um, that, that's, you know, untenable. Um, so you can be put into a queue uh, if a counselor is not available. However, the goal with this 988 hotline is to have an 80-20 rule. So the 80-20 rule is that 80% of calls should be answered in 20 seconds or less. But right now that's sort of aspirational. That's what they're shooting for, 80% of calls being answered in 20 seconds or less. Um, I was also really curious, how long do people spend talking to a counselor on the phone? 
are we talking a minute, two minutes? Are we talking an hour, two hours? You know, I'm like curious how long uh, counselors are, are talking to people on the phone. Um, and there's information on this online. It's called call handle time. Uh, and in the call centers that exist now, um, calls are 10 minutes on average, uh, but they tend to range from two to 25 minutes. So about 10 minutes is usually how long you're on the phone with a counselor. Um, with these counselors, I also had some questioning about the training of individuals. You know, do you have to have a certain degree? Do you have to have a certain licensure certification? Um, are they being supervised? Uh, you know, by a licensed mental health counselor or a licensed psychologist? You know, what degree of clinical oversight is there? Um, especially at these local call centers. Um, online, it says that all counselors must be, quote, trained crisis counselors. But exactly what goes into that, I, you know, I'm, I'm not super sure. Um, and they also assure that there's a lifeline core clinical training that's under development. Uh, but given that this is rolling out in a month, I have no idea when this lifeline core clinical training is going to roll out. Um, I don't know. I'm, again, sort of skeptical about all of this. Uh, you also, you know, there's so many local crisis centers throughout the United States. How do you know if your local crisis center is participating in the 988 line? Um, uh, this is going to be very confusing for individuals because some are going to be part of this 988 network, but many and maybe even most are not going to be part of the 988 network. So this is just going to be super, super confusing. Um, I'm also curious when you call uh, whether the counselor tries to verify whether they're speaking with a minor or with an adult, because there's obviously different laws that'll go along with whether you're speaking to a minor or an adult. Um, I'm curious as to whether call centers are centralized. So like if you're in Alaska or Wyoming or somewhere, um, are all these people sitting at the same physical location and picking up phones with maybe like a, a licensed mental health supervisor sitting behind them to troubleshoot? Or are counselors, because this is 24 seven, allowed to, you know, pick up calls from home. Um, and if they are allowed to pick up calls from home, that opens up sort of Pandora's box about confidentiality. Uh, you know, how do you know the counselor's not picking up the phone while they're at dinner or whatever? Um, I just have all these different questions, you know, about how these call centers work. And maybe that varies based on the local call center's policies and whatever. Um, uh, had questions about language because not everybody is going to speak English. Um, related to that, uh, online it says that uh, if you have somebody that doesn't speak English um, at a local crisis center or call center, they can relay the call to a national language translating service that supports over 250 languages. Um, I've worked with something like that right now um, doing social security disability evaluations. Uh, oftentimes I'll have somebody that speaks a language that I don't speak or that we don't have access to a local translator for. Um, I'll call the number, which I believe is in Washington, D.C., um, and they'll find a translator for that language. Um, also, for people that are deaf or hard of hearing, there will be TTY services. TTY is teletype writing. Um, so that's kind of cool that uh, they are making um, uh, this hotline hopefully accessible to a lot of different people. Um, another question I sort of had was right now, um, some local jurisdictions have a uh, 211 hotline, so you can call 211. Um, 211 provides health and uh, social services support. Um, uh, with this, SAMHSA uh, says that 211 is supposed to be a warm line, 
So it's supposed to, uh, it's going to now take over sort of non-emergent health and social services questions, whereas 988 is a hotline. So it's more emergency related. Um, I also had sort of a question of whether they're recording these calls. Um, it seems like when you call uh, Comcast or AT&T or, uh, you know, any sort of corporate organization or whatever, right, um, they say, you know, this call can be recorded for quality assurance and training purposes. Um, well, that is the case for the 988 hotline. Apparently, the calls can be recorded for quality assurance and training purposes. And I'm wondering, again, if that little blurb is going to be at the beginning uh, before you talk to a counselor. Um, again, there's sort of a balance between disclosure of confidentiality and that sort of stuff on the front end versus patching you into a counselor ASAP. So um, I'm curious to hear what others think about this 988 hotline. Maybe some of you are already um, hired at a crisis center and uh, you know more the ins and outs of this. Um, send me an email at ctayllo 41 at cvu.edu because um, I'd be curious, very curious to hear uh, sort of your opinion on the 988 hotline um, and maybe some things I got wrong in this podcast. Because again, I have a lot of question marks. I think it's going to be a great thing in the long run, but I do have some serious concerns about this July 16th rollout. And so I just threw out my email address, which is ctayllo 41 at cbu.edu. And send me feedback on 988 or if you work at a crisis center or whatever. Um, but you can also send in episode requests, uh, comments, criticisms, whatever. Put the subject line mailbag in. Um, I'll try to get back to them as soon as I can. Uh, I do have a mailbag uh, email from this week, and it says, I've been listening to your podcast during work, and I've really enjoyed it. I have a book idea for a podcast. So one thing you can email me is book ideas, especially since I'm going to the beach in a couple of weeks. Um, I can pick up a book for a, a beach read um, and maybe do an episode on it. Um, uh, the book that uh, this mailbag request mentions is called My Lobotomy. So not exactly light beach reading. Um, she says, I read it in my abnormal psychology class and I found it extremely interesting. It's about a guy named Howard Dully who had a bad home life as a child. His stepmom always tried to find something wrong with Howard and punish him for things he did not do. The stepmom met with Dr. Freeman, and I think maybe in the history of psychopathology episode, I discussed Dr. Freeman a little bit in lobotomies, uh, who diagnosed him with schizophrenia and had him perform a transorbital lobotomy on him when he was 12 years old, even though Howard showed no signs of schizophrenia or mental disorder. And 12 years old, remember, childhood schizophrenia is extremely, extremely rare, right? We're talking about a prevalence of one in 10,000. On the rest of his life, he was in and out of institutions and struggled with substance abuse disorder for the rest of his life. He ended up interviewing other lobotomy patients of uh, Freeman and broadcasted his story and wrote this book. Particularly interested if his stepmom had borderline personality disorder. Um, we see borderline personality disorder traits. Stepmom seemed to have rapidly changing moods, instability, a fear of abandonment, uh, which we know is central to a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. So much so that she rejects Howard. I also wonder if the dad would classify for any type of disorder. Personally, I think he might have had some narcissistic traits. Um, I think it would be interesting for you to talk about the ethical side of psychology procedures and how this procedure could have been stopped or prevented from occurring. Thanks, Jewel. So this is really fascinating, Jewel, and it hits on a lot of my interests. Um, one is ethics in the practice of psychology. Um, another is the history of psycho psychology and psychological treatments. Um, and another is just sort of on psychological diagnoses and differential diagnosis. 
Sounds super interesting. Um, I might uh, try to buy this book, My Lobotomy, and do a future episode on this. Um, I know somebody else, uh, I think somebody in my summer class recommended that I watch a Netflix series on multiple personality disorder um, or dissociative identity disorders, it's now known. I think it's called Monsters Inside or something. It's about Billy Milligan um, getting Monsters Inside confused with like the TLC show or A&E show that I love called Monsters Inside of Me about like parasitic infections and stuff. Um, but anyways, I'm open to like Netflix suggestions or Hulu suggestions. Right now I have um, subscriptions to just about every streaming service. And my wife is like saying that we have way too many subscriptions, want me to cut back on them. Um, uh, but anyways, uh, you can make suggestions about things I should watch and I can do an episode on too. Um, anyways, we're out of time for, for this episode. Um, until the next episode, take care, stay well, send me some emails.